electric. <laughs> Tears. Get there. He can handle the rest of this. Stoic and spectacular. Jason Dufter takes the PGA. What is up? Welcome to Season 3, Episode 22 of the Sportscasters. It is August 13th, 2013. We are inching closer and closer to football season as every NFL team has now played at least one preseason game. I am the host of the podcast, Steve Bennett. Don Russ is over there. Yep. Last week, we had Rich Eisen on the show. What did you think of the big Eisen podcast, Don? Uh, It's great. He's the best. Yeah, it's really good to have him on. Now we've had... As far as football goes, we've had some big ones. We had Peter King twice, Rich Eisen now. We've had Mike Tirico. We're going to have Mike Tirico on again soon. We've had Kenny Albert. And we're just going to keep going after the big ones. We've got a lot of stuff planned for August here. We're chasing a lot of big interviews. Yeah, we've had the main guy, I would say, from all the big sports, like the NFL Network. That was the guy we hadn't had on. Uh, maybe someone like Nance, Bill Simmons or somebody would be the guy that we haven't had it maybe is the biggest at what he does, but I think that would be a long shot. Yeah, Bill Simmons has been the one like from the beginning that I always thought would be really cool, but kind of figured we'd never be able to get, especially being I, as I close don't to think Dave he, as we are. I don't know that he does that stuff. I I mean, he does his own, does. so yeah, yeah, I don't think he does the other ones. But uh, big show today for you. We have Jeff Passan, the OG of the Sportscasters, right, the original right. guest, is on the show today to talk baseball. We haven't done that in a bit. And also, we're going to finish off the book club book of the month, Difficult Men, in an interview with a guy named Brett Martin who wrote that book. We recorded this interview before the season premiere of Breaking Bad, which was Sunday, so we didn't get into that, although we did foreshadow the season more as a whole. Uh, so you can look forward to that after Five on Fantasy, which returns for the first time in a couple of weeks. All right, let's get started with the show today and do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. NFL. Uh, we'll kick it off with again. Like we said, this is probably going to hold a spot here for... Quite a while now, probably the rest of the year. But uh, news of the week this week, not a lot of injuries to speak of. There were two big, well, one real big-name guy and one mildly big-name guy that both had scares yesterday. Both were carted off the field. Uh, Jamal Charles with a foot sprain. Foot. Yeah, they called it non-structural bruising, and they're just calling it a strain, I guess. So sounded really bad on Twitter. Twitter can make something sound really oh, bad. Oh right, yeah. I think the initial report was just he was carted, carted off, off and that they didn't say he was carted off like in the passenger seat, not right. like on a stretcher in the Smiling, back. Smiling. Right, right. Playing Candy Crush. Right. Right. Malcolm Floyd's the other name. Uh he collided with a teammate and was in a lot of pain or so it looked. I mean, I guess he could be in a lot of pain and not be seriously hurt. But uh 
His x-rays were also negative, and he has a sprained knee. So this is those things I think we talked about a few weeks ago where maybe it's the type of thing that you don't mind your guy gets. You know what? Like, Do the Chiefs really need to see Jamal Charles in a preseason game? So you just rest him for maybe the rest of the preseason, and he'll be ready for the start of the season. I got to watch Jamal Charles play some preseason football this week, and I'll tell you what, he looks ready to go to me. Yeah. I think if he didn't have to play another preseason snap, he'd probably be okay opening day. Sure. Did you see anything of note either in the preseason Bills game, which I assumed you've seen some of, or in any preseason football this week that caught your eye at all? I mean, people in Buffalo are overreacting to Jeff Toole, the backup backup that had a real nice game. Uh, EJ Manuel looked good. Not spectacular. It was a lot of little short stuff and... Uh, I didn't see much of it, but I guess he looked a little bit checked down, like he looked to the check down guy a lot. But it's his first game. I'm not gonna. Over- I wouldn't overreact one way or the other. If he had a phenomenal game, I guess it would have been great. But uh, I'll take the efficient game he had. Uh, I like Goodwin. Yeah, he can, <laughs> he can run. Returner. He can run. That I don't know if how much different the game is in preseason to the regular season, but uh, that's. That, I think, will translate. I think he, he looks good. I watched both. I seen both of his kick returns in real time, and I thought he was going to take the first one back, but he kind of stumbled. Yeah. And then he took the second one back, and he took it back quickly. I mean, yeah. he was from one end zone to the next. He was seven yards deep when he caught that ball, and he was into the other end zone very, very quickly. Yeah, they said someone clocked it about 13 seconds or so. Yeah, he, he can run really fast. Uh, kind of an interesting, kind of funny note that came out of the first week of training camp or first week of preseason games, you know, the way it generally goes is there's a local broadcast for these preseason games, and a lot of times it's former players who, who call the games for their teams. Right. And in the Bills case, for example, it was Ray Bentley on play-by-play okay. and Steve Tasker on color, so okay. two former Bills. Right. Uh, the Browns broadcast, uh, the color man was Bernie Kozar, and he was very harsh in his analysis of the St. Louis Rams and I guess he's gotten t- spoken with by the president of his team. Uh, some of the people in the Rams higher ups weren't too happy. So what did he say? Well, after Rams receiver Nick Johnson dropped a Sam Bradford pass, he said, "That is actually not a bad throw. These St. Louis receivers are horrible. That's a drop there." After play-by-play man Jim Donovan told a story about Rams backup quarterback Colin Clemens giving Pope Benedict. What is that? The 14th in autograph. He said, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I have I have to watch him the whole fourth quarter. <laughs> and then on Rams receiver coach Ray Sherman, he said, I'm checking through the itinerary here of guys and coaches to see who the receiver's coach is to make sure I don't know who this guy is because he's not doing very good either. Yeah. So he didn't pull any punches? I guess not. He didn't necessarily say anything offensive, I don't think. He just sounded grumpy. Maybe overly harsh. And, grumpy. Yeah, yeah grumpy. I heard something that maybe they had said that somebody had tried to say it's because of concussions. He doesn't have in- impulse control. But <laughs> is if that, that true? If that's the case, he needs to probably not do the color. On the no, game. you wouldn't. You can't think have so. it both ways. You know, you can't be suffering from impulse because con- you can't have a t- uh, like a, a Tourette's rant on the air, right? Right. You know, or something. We don't want to totally tarnish a guy's re- reputation. So. I thought that was pretty interesting. I think the obvious thing to point out there is uh, 
I mean, it's Bernie Kosar, and he played for the Browns. Right. Who, he's, who, he's a Brown. I mean, he's a Brown through and through. Yeah. Who is he to kind of call out lousy organizations? Well, they were really good when he was there. Yes. They were in the AFC Championship yeah. game two years in a row and should have won them both <laughs> through no fault of his. He didn't fumble and he right, didn't let up right. the drive. So, But I see what you're saying in the larger picture. I mean, the Rams have more Super Bowls than the Browns. That's true. I mean, one to zero. <laughs> so, And the Browns have never even appeared in a Super Bowl. Right. Uh, what else we got? I uh, got to watch the Saints thanks to oh, Justin right, right. TV, and that was ugly. Thanks to Justin <laughs> yeah. TV. Um, let's see. So the Saints... Won the toss, kicked off. I was like, yes, new defense. They're going to rule. And then Alex Smith and Jamal Charles marched down the field and scored a touchdown, 80 yards in 10 or 12 plays. Yeah. It was great. And then uh, the Saints offense came out, and they got a first down, and then Breeze threw a bomb, a strike down the sideline to uh, Kenny Stills from Oklahoma, who's trying to get that third wide receiver spot. Who I heard should have had that. And he should have had it. He dropped it. And so that stopped that, and then they immediately returned the ensuing punt about 70 yards to set up a field goal. Hmm. So it was like, okay, defense, no. Offense, nope. Special teams, nope. Then they played a little bit better, and some of the guys that need to be good to make a spot on the team played pretty good. They ended up winning the game, if that means anything. But regardless, it was fun to watch them for the 15 minutes that it was actually interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know. I. Preseason to me, you, you see a game, it's like, yeah, football. And then like 10 minutes into it, you don't know anybody on the field. And it's like, yeah, I, I still don't care about preseason. But uh, the league has taken a step closer to HGH, HGH testing. Yeah, I did hear apparently. that. Yeah. I, it's not official yet, but apparently they're really close. Good, I guess. Uh, speaking of other injury-related things, Plaxico Burris, uh, who's kind of irrelevant at this point anyway, but he has season-ending rotator cuff surgery, and you've got to imagine that it may be career-ending yeah. at this point. Pretty uh, much it was career-ending the night he shot himself in the leg at Applebee's. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, Mike Shanahan says no possibility of seeing RG3 this preseason. So if you have a preseason fantasy league and you drafted RG3... <laughs> Waste uh, of a roster yeah, spot. That yeah, was, that was a mistake. All right, move on. Um... Oh, two more quick things. Ryan okay. Ryan Longwell signed a one-day deal with the Packers and retired. If, uh, if you're a kicker fan. They and... might be cutting their kicker, by the way. I heard that uh, Crosby's in some trouble there. Really? Yeah, I heard he's not making any kicks. Hmm. Keep an eye on that. And also, in uh, my bit of Reddit news for the day, Adrian Peterson next week at 1.30 Eastern time will be doing an AMA on Reddit, which means ask me anything. So he'll be doing kind of a Reddit interview next week. Do you hear anything about whether or not he's going to play on Friday? Because that's in Buffalo. And if he's going to play even a quarter, I'm probably going to go. I have not heard it. I don't know. Did he play in the last game? No, he didn't. Hmm. I. He's the type of guy, too, that I imagine why would you play him. I'm sure the NFL doesn't love that because uh, they want to sell those preseason tickets. But, I, yeah, I don't know. It's kids' day, I think, for right. the Bills. So there's that. All right, second thing this week, the PGA Championship was right down the spot here in Rochester, New York, and it was won by a guy named Justin Duffner, wins the PGA, or his name is Jason Duffner, right? Uh, I don't have it in front of me. Well, whatever. Jason, Justin, everyone keeps calling him every other thing. I know it's Jason. I don't know why I fell into the trap of calling him Justin, because Stern kept calling him Justin today. It's Jason, yeah. Yeah. He was on Howard Stern today, and Stern kept calling him Jason and or Justin, and not one time did Duffner 
Correct. Correct. Uh, but he won the PGA. He won it by spitting chew on the course all weekend. He won it by almost setting a record for the lowest score ever in a major. He left his putt short, just short for what yeah, would yeah. have uh, set a record. And he won it by grabbing his wife's behind on the way off the course in what might be the ridiculous, most ridiculous overreaction overreaction in the history of overreactions. Yeah, I hadn't seen it, uh, but I watched it today and getting that clip. And yeah, it's it's nothing. Uh, like I said to you, it's it looks like the way a football player might smack the ass of his replacement as he goes onto the field or whatever. It it was barely anything. He gave her a hug, kiss, whatever, and then kind of pat her on the butt and he walked toward the gallery. He's 36 years old. It's his first major win. He's been a pro since 2000, so that's a pretty long time coming. I'm sure at this point, a lot of people thought it would never happen for Jason Duffner, but. Don't feel too bad for him. He said today on Stern he's won $15 million in his career before the $1.8 million he won to win this tournament. So he's been doing okay. His highest finish in a major previous to this was a second-place finish in the PGA. I believe last year, maybe the year before that, Keaton Bradley won that one, and Bradley beat him in a playoff. They tied, and he lost the first hole in the playoff. he blew a lead there, too, or something. Yeah, so good for Duffner. Congratulations. His name is Jason. Don't call him Justin anymore, Howard. (laughs) You even got me to say Justin. A little bit of sad news at the Atlanta Braves game. A 30-year-old guy named Ronald Homer uh, fell 65 feet over a railing into a parking lot and died in a hospital of injuries. Uh, What happened is still kind of a mystery. I guess anything from him jumping to... Him slipping on the wet surface combined with him being six and a half feet tall where they think the railings would not have really helped him. Uh, what a yeah. bummer. Yeah, it's a bummer. Sad story. Called his mom, I guess, beforehand. Just like she said, just like he always would. She said he wasn't a big drinker, so he maybe had one or two at the game, but she doubts he was drunk. It's a sad story, and it sounds like it's the second... That sounds like it... it it's the second person to have died at Turner Field. I guess another guy fell down some stairs or something, but his was, this, the previous guy's was related to drinking. So, uh, yeah, the Homer family, uh, condolences. Definitely a bummer. We feel terrible for him. It's a sad day for spec. I mean, it's it's just brutal. You know what I mean? You just, and this type of thing does happen. We reported on the podcast, I believe, last year, a player threw a foul ball to a fan and the fan reached over the railing and slipped and fell off the fence and died. Devastating. Yep. All right, last thing for three things for me today. How do you feel about this one, Don? So let's put it in Buffalo terms. So you're at the DMV. Okay. You're waiting in line to renew your license. Mm-hmm. It's about an hour line. You're standing there. You look over to your left, and you see Thomas Vanek walking in. Okay. And Thomas is kind of milling around. He's like looking. You know how you always you go in there? Am I supposed to be in this line or that line? You don't want to get it wrong. You don't want to wait too long in the wrong line. And the next thing you know, Vanek doesn't get in the line. Instead, he skips to the front, renews his license, checks out. You pissed or not pissed? I I think it's a – I don't know if I'd be pissed either way. First of all, I've never stood in a really bad line at the DMV. To me, that's, that seems overrated a little bit. Maybe I've just – no, not to go to, I don't know, during peak times or whatever, but it's never been, I've never had a horrible DMV experience. Uh, I think it would more shape my opinion of him. Like, did Crosby walk in and just be like, oh, yeah, I should say hey. it wasn't Thomas Vanek. It was Sidney no, 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 Crosby no, no, right, who did right, this. Right, right. Yeah. But does Crosby walk into the DMV and say, 
like just give some sort of like, hey, I'm Sidney Crosby. I'm going to the front of the line. Or did someone go like, well, acor- hey, Sid. According to the CEO of the Penguins, David Morehouse, he says that anyone who knows Sid or follows hockey in Pittsburgh or anywhere knows that's not the person he is. To think he would flaunt his status and cut line, that's not him. And anyone who has been around him or hockey knows that's not him. Anybody who has seen Sid in a public place knows his presence causes all kinds of commotion and that he likes least to cause a big scene. According to a spokeswoman from the DMV, what happened with Crosby was he was in line. Um, he was a high-profile visitor. He was causing a stir, so they decided to get him in and out of there. Yeah, so that's it was what the I, decision of the DMV. That's actually what I would have assumed, honestly. Is uh, I know Eddie Vedder has said before that he doesn't like to take pictures with people, not because he doesn't want to take pictures or not because he doesn't appreciate his fans, but because if he does, it's going to create a crowd and then one picture will turn into a million and he'll never get to leave and there'll be mass people around and whatever. Uh, He's kind of said he'd rather shake your hand and say a few words to you or whatever. I imagine that's the same thing that the DMV would have been thinking with Crosby is if we just have this guy sitting on the bench like everybody else waiting for his number to be called or standing in a line, yeah, I mean, people are going to... There's going to be commotion, and what is already a bad time for some people waiting in line for a DMV is just going to be worse. So It's kind of like LeBron at jury duty. Just seems yeah, like yeah. one of those things they that... They weren't going to send it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, his boy James Neal, the Penguins, had his back by tweeting, I skipped the line at the DMV, too, just in case anyone was wondering. <laughs> I don't have a big problem with it. No, I, I don't either. I, you, you, you didn't did, walk in there like you said and said, do you know right. who I am? That's the only way it would right. bother me. Uh, my last thing this week, Russian legislation uh, has this banned. This is going to get ugly. Yeah, it might. has banned propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations. Um, we've kind of stated before in the past that we don't care. Uh, not in a... We are against it, but we just... It's you want to not explain that a little bit more in layman's terms? Yeah. Any, what have we talked about in the past? Players coming out or athletes uh, in the closet. Jason like Collins that. was the basketball player right. who came out. And the thought is that we don't... What His, his business is his business, and it's not going to change my opinion of Jason Collins for the worse or for the better that he came out of the closet. Uh, we should live in a society where people just don't care enough to make a stir over it. Well, Russian legislation has just recently been passed that bans propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations. Uh, Beyond that, an Olympics official has spoken out and what was at one point kind of legal speak, like like I said, propaganda of a non-traditional sexual relations, that's kind of a... uh, Black, black and white, but uh, not too controversial way to put it. Not that the, I'm stumbling here, but uh, I'll say this about it: the official has come out and said worse things. Alexei Sorokin has said, "quote The Olympics and World Cup are not a stage for various views, not for Nazis, not for any other ways of life." And then he goes on to say, "Would you like a World Cup where naked people are roaming around, displaying their sexuality?" So that's a ridiculous statement, right? It's yeah. totally ridiculous. Right. Uh, and I don't know if that's really the belief that if you have this propaganda, that's what's going to happen. But the problem with this legislation is that doesn't sound too horrible in itself. But basically, if you have a discussion about homosexuality, like within earshot of a kid, 
you can be arrested. Now, Russian officials have gone on to say basically that uh, Olympic athletes are not going to be held to this standard. But the IOC wants something like hard and firm in writing. They, they want clarification that they're not going to send athletes there. They're going to get arrested because they display a rainbow on their shirt or something like that. You know, I would say this. So Russia has laws that would never be stood for in the United States right. in regards to the rights of gays and lesbians, right? Sure. But that's not our country. Right. And it's not a communist nation anymore. They have elections. I've heard that this particular regime has been sort of trending in a dangerous way back to somewhat communist ways. But I don't know enough about that to really comment. But those are the laws of the nation. And I kind of think that we have to respect them to some degree. We don't have to agree to them or like them. But if you're if you if the Olympic Committee disagrees with them, they should have never placed the Olympics there to begin with. They should have said we're not bringing the Olympics there because of these laws. At this point, I've heard people say things like, you should ban Russia from the games, you should boycott the That's just going to hurt the athletes. Yeah, the only issue I have with it, and I don't have dates, but in the article, and I looked up a different article here, it says Russia's new anti-gay law. So they were after that the the Olympics were awarded to them? I, I believe that's the way these make it sound, like it's reactionary to... I, I don't know, maybe there's a liberal... I just don't think we get to decide what the world decides about every issue. I would agree with that. I think it's wrong. I wouldn't want them to be the laws here. And if they were, I would hope that as a society, we would elect the proper officials to make the laws different. Yeah, but I, I just don't think because this country has these laws that we should put athletes in a position now, athletes who didn't make the laws, to, uh, to suffer. Either by saying to our athletes you should boycott or by saying right. you should ban Russian athletes. Yeah, and there definitely has been a call for that. Um, I guess I don't know the IOC's mission statement or their bylaws or anything. Is it supposed to be a celebration of people type thing? Because when does where does that stop then? Uh, where would you not have an Olympics if you want to go? I mean, do you limit it to places that only gel kind of with your personal beliefs? And if you don't, I mean, you're not going to have it somewhere like South Korea or... North Korea. North Korea. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. They did have one in South Korea. Yeah, they had a Seoul. World Cup there. No, they had one in Seoul. Olympics. Yeah. Okay, right. But yeah, you wouldn't have one in North Korea for those reasons. So, I mean, what's the difference, I guess? That's... Yeah, I mean, maybe Russia was a bad place to have it. I don't know enough about the laws. I don't Russia. either. I know that this law on surface seems like a bad one. But right. I and they're just... getting beat up. Even Obama has come out and said... Uh, taking a stance against it. Obviously. And that's what I think we should call for. We should call for, is Russia in the United Nations? Maybe the United Nations should try to do something about this. Right, yeah. it's a political issue, not a sports issue. Right, right. yeah, and I, I agree with that. I'm fine with that. Uh, I wouldn't want to pressure the athletes to do something that they've worked their whole, to not do something they've worked their whole life for. Uh, I saw somebody, I can't remember who now, just said that maybe... You can wear like a little flag on your shirt and during your during like the opening ceremonies, hold your hands in front of your chest or something as a show of solidarity or whatever. But uh, 
whatever. I this just want to get uglier and uglier. I bet. Yeah, I like. I think the IOC is right to want some sort of evidence that they're not going to have athletes being arrested. All right, we're going to take a break and come back with Jeff Passan. Our first guest is from Cleveland, Ohio, and is a graduate of Syracuse University. At Syracuse, he wrote for the school's paper, The Daily Orange. After graduation, he went west to cover Fresno State basketball for the Fresno Bee. In 2004, he began covering baseball for the Kansas City Star before moving to Yahoo in 2006. His work has been honored with multiple Associated Press Sports Editor Awards and has been recognized by the Best American Sports Writing Anthology. Today, he is the lead baseball columnist for Yahoo Sports and the co-author of the critically acclaimed book, Death to the BCS. He was the first guest ever to appear on the Sportscasters and is making his fifth appearance today. A warm welcome to Jeff Passan. What's up, Jeff? Is it really my fifth? Your fifth. Has anyone got me beat? Yeah. Uh, the the number one spot goes to Lee Jenkins at 14. You've got to be kidding me. It's insane, right? 14? 14. You know, the thing is with Lee is we don't know a lot of basketball guys. So pretty much any time yeah, we want to do true. a basketball spot, we call Lee, you know, so it, like, builds up. And, I got to get you another basketball person. Yeah, we, we got, were talking to – who I else did we – Taz Mellis we talked to a little bit. He's not a bad dude from the Basketball Jones. Yeah, all the Basketball Jones guys are fantastic, yeah, actually. Yeah, we talked to him a couple times. And Chris Ballard one time did basketball with us, I think. Yeah, he's great, too. Jenkins Jenkins is uh, as, as solid a uh, guy and as great a writer as there is out there. He's absolutely fantastic. So Yeah, super uh, nice, dude. Yeah, good, good, good to know I'm playing second or third or fourth fiddle to him. <laughs> so last time you were on, it was June-ish. And one of the things we discussed was the Pirates and kind of where they stood and if they could keep it there. And it sort of seems like they're going to do it this time, huh? They are. I mean, if they don't make the playoffs this year, it is going to be an all-time collapse. And it's going to be uh, interesting to see down the stretch if they can hold off St. Louis and if Cincinnati is going to make a run here. Uh, look, when it, ta- when it comes around time to make playoff picks, I don't think I'm going to be picking the Pirates to go very far. And I know I've been doubting them all year long. They've continued to do it. But if you talk to scouts out there, if you talk to people, they're not saying it's by hook and crook necessarily, but they're saying they still don't get how the Pirates day in and day out are winning 60% of their games. And you know what? Maybe they're one of those teams that's like the Oakland A's last year where, and like the Oakland A's this year where you look at the roster and you're like, really? This is a team that's going to win 90-something games? And they go out and do it. But the, the playoffs are an entirely different beast. And for the Pirates, I think it's going to be very important to not be in that one-game playoff because they just seem like a team to me that they're going to need a game or two in the playoffs to kind of get settled in. If they're in that one-game playoff, I don't think there's any chance I would pick them unless they somehow are playing the Astros in some kind of bizarre playoff travesty. Well, I mean, who uh, who do they start game one? Do they go with Frankie Liriano? They gave up 10 runs, I think, his last outing. Do they go with A.J. Burnett? Uh, do they go with Garrett Cole, the rookie who has the best stuff on the That's what I would team? do. I mean, is it Wandy Rodriguez? There are a bunch of different possibilities. They don't have that clear-cut one, though, who you know is going to get them to that five-game uh, league division series. Yeah, if I would definitely I'd go with the stud kid because I, I, think, I still think this is a bonus year for them. 
You know, and I don't think like Lariano is going to start Game One of the World Series for them in two years or something. You know, so I would just. I, I, I tend to agree with you fundamentally. I don't think there's any chance they start the rookie then, though, unless they're really fighting it out toward the end of the season, trying to get uh, the, that uh, Central Division title, and they lose it on the last day, and it just happens to be Cole's turn coming up next. I, I think it would be either Liriano or Burnett. I mean, remember, Adrian Burnett's the guy who's pitched on a World Series winning team, so uh, he's someone with playoff experience. Liriano's pitched in the playoffs as well, hasn't fared. Uh, quite as well, but uh, there, there's experience there, and I think a team like the Pirates that doesn't have any playoff experience is going to want to rely on that guy who has some. Fair enough, fair enough. You know what else I think we were talking about in June was whether or not the Dodgers should fire Don Mattingly. What did I say? I think you said no, that you wouldn't. But okay, yeah. all right. I, I feel validated there. <laughs> that, uh, that's I, off the board. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like they can't lose. I mean, they're unbelievable right now. I think it's 38 of the last 46 they've won, something along those lines, and they're on a historic run right now. And you can understand when you see the talent that they've got on their team, how they're doing it. I mean, they've got really good starting pitching. Kenley Jansen at the back end has solidified uh, that closer's role and uh, is one of the more dominant guys out there. And uh, when you have Puig hitting like he is and Hanley Ramirez, uh, and the rest of the outfield that they've got, Adrian Gonzalez is having a great year. I mean, top to bottom, that's a very, very dangerous team. And uh, as much as I like the Cardinals, as much as I like the Braves, I, I think if it were today, I'd probably pick the Dodgers to go to the World Series. Do you think we have to give the Dodgers organization a little bit of a hat tip in showing patience and sticking with Mattingly? Like, how, Realistically, how many teams in their position do you think would have made a change when they were struggling as bad as they were early? I quite a few, I think, and it's you know it's a testament to Ned Coletti and Stan Kasten and the guys who run the Dodgers organization that they did stick with him. They were very close to letting him go. I mean, they had a come to Jesus meeting with Don Mattingly where they said, "You got to get this ship straightened out right now because we we can't do this. We we can't with a two hundred plus million dollar payroll." have a team that's underperforming as much as this one is. And it was understandable that they said that to him because, frankly, they were right. Uh, you know, when you spend that much money and have that much invested in this year and in the years coming forward, you need to have a guy there who's going to lead them the right way. And Don Mattingly, I think, adjusted. I think he uh, took more accountability and told his guys, you know, time to shape up because – this is wrong and this is embarrassing. And that's exactly what happened. And the Dodgers are, look, they're playing better than I think anyone could have imagined, but uh, they're, they're absolutely fantastic right now. And sometimes it takes 40, 50 games for a team to find its identity. And I think the Dodgers found theirs and it was really just a matter of time with them when it was going to click. You know, speaking of clicking, I guess is a fair segue. The Braves are another team who've kind of been on a huge run recently, just kind of getting out of a 15-game winning streak. I think it got as high as 15. Maybe it's 14. 14-game winning streak. They're 72-47. Yep. They have a huge lead. They're going to coast to the playoffs. One thing that's been kind of interesting about them the last couple of weeks is watching the progression of Brandon Beachy in each of his three starts since he's gotten back into the rotation. His first start was, I think, his worst start as a Major League Baseball pitcher. His second yep. start was better. And then his last start was Brandon, like he never missed a game. He was fantastic, dominant stuff. 
How do you think, knowing as much as you've kind of studied the injury he had and the pitching arm in general over the last year or so, based on the project you're working on, where do you think what what do you think the expectation can be for going for him going forward, and and what do you think it means for the Braves, especially after the Hudson interview uh, or injury, to have him pitching the way he pitched the other day as opposed to his first two starts? Well, if you can you know if you can throw a guy into the rotation and get eight shutout innings like they did with Brandon Beachy last time, it's just such a luxury. It's it's so nice to uh, to have that, and uh, their their rotation's already pretty good to begin with. I mean, when you can you know, get Mike Miner, who's been superb this year, Julio Tehran's been fantastic uh, in his rookie season, uh, a guy like Paul Mahalam, who's uh, as steady as they come, and then you throw Beachy in there with that, uh, all of a sudden, we're talking about a dangerous team. Uh, the, their bullpen's been tremendous. You know, Luis Avilan's a guy who really had to step up after Eric O'Flaherty and Johnny Venters both blew out, and Avilan's done that. He's, I think, 50-something innings so far this season and still hasn't given up a home run. And it's those it's those sinker ballers who, when you have a defense behind you with Andrelson Simmons uh, hoovering everything that gets hit in his direction, that's huge. And, uh, you know, the, the Braves, they're that team that you hope can pull it together offensively because they've got a bunch of pieces with Upton and Gaddis and Hayward and Freeman, who can get very hot at the same time, but who also can be very, very cold. And that, I think, is the Achilles for the Braves right now. Do they have enough as far as bats go? And are they going to be able to put the ball in play enough come playoff time when they're facing much better pitching to make it all the way? And uh, that's the question mark at this point and the thing that I'd be concerned about if I were them. Yeah, the Braves strike out way too much, especially with runners in scoring position. Yeah, and well, that's you know when you put a team together with all those aforementioned guys and Dan Ugla as well, and uh, even a guy like Chris Johnson who uh, has had incredible luck on balls in play this season, uh, you're going to have a lot of strikeouts. But getting Brian McCann back, I think, was huge. He's such a uh, you know such a force in the middle of that lineup, and uh, going into free agency this off season, you know that he's going to want to have a big postseason too. So. Uh, the, there are potentially uh, a lot of bats in that lineup that can come out and make a difference, and the Braves just hope that they can get a couple of them going at one time. We've already mentioned two things. One, that you were the first person on this podcast and that you covered baseball in Kansas City. And the sixth guy in this podcast was Joe Poznanski, who also covered baseball in Kansas City. And it seems like since this podcast started, we've been trying to will the Royals into the playoffs. And it seems like this is the, this is the closest certainly they've been. But is it going to be the kind of year where they're just in the wrong league and the wrong division at the wrong time to make this run that they're making? Do they have enough to get past maybe the A's in the wild card or probably not enough to catch Detroit, though? No, I though they've got a five-game series against the Tigers coming up this weekend, and it's going to be very interesting to see how they respond to that. The Royals have uh, gotten into contention on the backs of bad teams. You know, they've beaten Minnesota and the White Sox, uh, but they did take a series from the Tigers. They did take a series from the Orioles. Uh, they beat up on the Mets. Uh, they haven't lost a series since the All-Star break. And when you can go out and win series, when you can take two or three games, uh, you know, you don't have to go on one of those unprecedented runs, but uh, the Royals are in the midst of, I think, winning 17 out of 20 at this point, and 
I don't think it's illegitimate. I mean, I, I had this team penciled in at the beginning of the year, I believe, for 84 or 85 wins and missing the playoffs by one or two games. And I could see that happening still. Uh, the, the competition is just very difficult. When you've got the three teams in the American League East uh, in Tampa Bay, Boston, and Baltimore, uh, and, and you've got the two teams out in the American League West with Texas and Oakland, I mean, there's legitimate, serious, good competition. And while the Royals' schedule is very friendly, facing, uh, I think, only one game against Tampa Bay, against a team that's over 500 out of the division in the next month and change, I mean, it's it's very favorable for them to to do some damage here. The question is that uh, awful run they had uh, in May end up dooming them and I think ultimately the answer is probably going to be yes. Are you surprised the Red Sox are as good as they are this year? Yeah, I picked the Red Sox to finish last. Yeah, and and, and look, I'm not uh, uh, I'm I'm not Karnak the magnificent. I, I don't have a crystal ball, and my predictions uh, can run hot and cold depending on the year. But uh, the way that the Red Sox have come together at this point is pretty pretty damn superb. And look, Kansas City just beat them three out of four games, so. Uh, the, the Royals are beating decent teams here, but, uh, Boston long-term, I don't really worry about They You know, they, they're sort of, uh, in that, in that category where they don't have an ace. They have a lot of, you know, good number two and three starters like Peavy and Lester and even the way John Lackey's been pitching this year. And you could throw Ryan Dempster in as a three, four guy. I mean, they've got some, some serious talent in that rotation, but, Anyone who's going to carry them, anyone who's going to match up against a Verlander or a Scherzer, against a Price or a Moore, uh, uh, you know, against the the type of pitching that other teams can throw out there, a Darvish and a Garza, uh, I don't know. It's going to be tough for the Red Sox, I think, pitching-wise, uh, once the postseason comes. But what they've done so far, difficult to take away from them because they've been really, really impressive. And I think a lot of credit goes to Ben Sherrington, the general manager, and John Farrell just turning things around attitude-wise in that clubhouse that was so poisoned last year with Bobby Valentine in it. I kind of have the impression from talking to you that if I were to put a gun to your head right now, you'd go Detroit versus L.A. in the World Series. Is that right, where you'd be right about now? Yeah, I'd say either Detroit, L.A. or or Detroit, St. Louis. I think those are probably my my favorites at this point. I I love the, the Cardinals lineup and... What they've done hitting with runners in scoring position this year is absolutely unprecedented and makes no sense. Uh, I mean, to be that much better uh, in clutch situations uh, than they are just in regular situations uh, defies logic. But it's the truth, and it's something that they've done for 115 games at this point. And so while I'm uh, I'm not going to say by any means that they can keep it up, I'm also not going to say that this is uh, something that's going to vanish uh, overnight and that they're suddenly going to become a team that can't hit like that. Uh, Detroit, though, to me, Detroit, between its lineup and uh, its its rotation, uh, it, it, they're just both so good. And the fact that Jose Iglesias is there now at short, so did you see that play he made last night? I did. Unbelievable. I don't think there's I don't think there's going to be a better defensive play this year. It, it just it, it didn't make sense how he could do something like that. Uh, I mean, his hand was 
six inches off the ground and practically threw it across the diamond to first base. It was a unfathomable play. And when you have somebody like that at shortstop, it's it's like the Simmons corollary. You know, it, there are so many ground ball pitchers on that Tiger staff. And when you have a guy like Iglesias behind you in whom you can have so much confidence that he's going to get just about everything, it makes that staff, I think, even more dangerous than it's been already. And the bullpen problems, look, those could come to roost in the postseason. But uh, when you have a, 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 you know, a triumvirate-like uh, Varus, Benoit, and Smiley, and even a guy like Bruce Rondone, who throws harder than uh, I think anybody in history, uh, when you can have those four guys back there, gives me a whole lot more confidence than I would have had, uh, you know, two or three months ago when they were tossing Jose Valverde out there to close out games. The Sportscasters here with Jeff Passan, at Jeff Passan on Twitter, Yahoo Sports. You can find all his great work there. It kind of seems like we're kind of settled in here as far as playoff teams go, with the exception of, you know, Baltimore is only two games behind Tampa Bay. Maybe it could be either of those teams. We talked about Kansas City maybe making a push. Is there any other team that's not really in a playoff spot right now that you think could make a run at it, a real serious run? I mean, it's kind of crazy when you look at it that the playoff picture is more or less set right now, Yeah, it right? seems settled. It seems really settled, with the exception I mean, we, of either one of those AL East teams kind of getting the second wild card. You know, maybe maybe if Arizona gets hot, it can push one of the central teams for the second wild card. But for the most part, in the, you know, in the National League, we've got uh, Atlanta uh, and Los Angeles winning their divisions and the three teams in the central getting those other spots. And... We've got uh, the American League, Detroit winning the Central, uh, Boston, you know, Boston Texas. in there, and uh, a race among uh, Texas, Oakland, right. uh, Kansas City, Baltimore, and Tampa Bay for uh, three of those final spots. And it's, I think the American League is going to be a whole lot more enjoyable and entertaining down the stretch than the National League. And I, you know, after the race last year it was just so fantastic. I'm hoping we can get something similar to that this year. Are you ready for Cabrera versus Trout 2.0? Oh, you know I'm ready for that. Yeah. You know I love that stuff because I just get destroyed on Twitter every <laughs> time I write about it. It's unbelievable the way that people will stick up and get uh, get very personal about Miguel Cabrera. Like when I say Mike Trout is the best player in baseball, which he is, there's Zero question in my mind that he is the best player in baseball. People from Detroit, Tigers fans, get remarkably pissed off and, and take it so personally. I'm like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to have an MVP vote this year because I had one last year. But if I do get one this year, right now Miguel Cabrera is the favorite for me. But that doesn't mean he's the best player in baseball. He's the best hitter right now. And I think he's probably been the best player this year so far. But if we're going to look at the rest of the season and if we're going to look going forward, it's got to be Mike Trout because his all-around game is just so spectacular. I mean, we're, we're watching a guy right now who could very easily go down as one of the best players in history. What he has done in his age 20 and 21 seasons uh, is truly unprecedented. He has been better in his first two full years than any player in the history of Major League Baseball. And... You know, we, we always thought we're never going to see a guy like Mickey Mantle again. Mike Trout is Mickey Mantle. He's Mickey Mantle who doesn't hit left-handed. That's the only difference between those two. 
great center fielder. They have unbelievable speed. They can kill you in any number of ways, whether it's on the base pass with the bat or in the field. And it is so much fun to watch that guy play. And I've been accused of having a man crush on Mike Trout, and I will absolutely cop to that. I think that the way he plays baseball is so much fun to watch. He's one of the reasons why you should be a baseball fan, as is Miguel Cabrera. Uh, you know, watching him hit, it's, it's artistic. It's beautiful. The, the way he can spray the ball with power to all places in the field, uh, nobody is like him right now, and it's a lot of fun to watch him hit. Uh, listening to you talk about Mark, uh, excuse me, Mike Trout is exactly like listening to me talk about who, Don? What football player does it sound like he would be? Adrian Peterson. Yeah. <laughs> I think you have a, a man crush on Trout like I have a man crush on Peterson. It's almost like you made the exact same argument that I always make about Peterson. Yeah, I mean, Peterson's pretty unbelievable. I still don't understand how he came back from an ACL tear in like three weeks. Yeah, I don't get that, it. <laughs> Yeah, that still that still sort of defies logic. But hey, there there are certain people, uh, and I'm working on the assumption that he did not use anything nefarious to get back, and I hope that that's correct. Uh, there there are certain people who are just healers, and uh, Adrian Peterson may well be a healer better than uh, anybody else out there. Somebody who, when he gets an injury, can come back from it, and you know it's like nothing even happened. You know. My brothers and I were at Yankee Stadium in July. None of us really big Yankee fans per se, just because we were in New York. We went to a game, and we were lucky enough to see Rivera pitch a one, two, three, ninth. And I, I remember saying something to my brothers like, "It's so cool that in his last season we get to see the greatest of all time at something, do his thing." Do you think? It, it seems like I've seen this a lot more. I don't think there's any de- debate about Rivera. He's probably the he's almost definitely the greatest closer of all time. Is Miguel Cabrera the greatest right-handed hitter of all time? Because that argument you know, is getting thrown around a lot all of a sudden. Yeah, I'm not going to go that far yet. I mean, there's there, look, he's got a contemporary who's got a pretty damn good uh, case to be made, and that's Albert Pujols. I mean, if you look at some of the seasons that Pujols had. Uh, the, the home runs, the average, the power, the plate discipline. Uh, I think you can say that Pujols so far, at least, has had a better career than Cabrera. I'm not sure that Pujols at his peak was as good as Cabrera has been at his peak. You know, another guy uh, who's in that argument is Manny Ramirez. Obviously, we uh, we know that uh, he was enhanced at the time. Does that make a difference? To, you know, to, to each his own on that one. Hank Aaron was a really, really good hitter and a guy who uh, played very well deep into his 30s. And that, that's a, a great differentiator to me, somebody who not only was uh, awesome at his peak, but was able to sustain it for a long time. If you go see some of Hank Aaron's numbers in his late 30s, they're as good as they were in his prime. And so I think Hank Aaron has to be in there. Willie Mays, obviously, another guy, 660 home runs. Uh, you know, we tend to look at left-handed hitters uh, because uh, their, their swings are so beautiful, whether it's Ted Williams or Barry Bonds or otherwise. But I think the, the majority of great players in baseball, you could throw Joe DiMaggio in there too, have been right-handed hitters. All right, last thing, we'll let you go on this. Last time you were on this show, we talked a lot about the book that you were that you're working on and preparing to release. And it was actually, I don't know if you remember this, but it was the day before you were going to Jacksonville to watch Hudson make a rehab start. And he 
tore his elbow again that night, huh? I mean, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to be there and the effect that it's had on your project? Uh, it, it was pretty horrible, actually. I mean, I, I've gotten to know Daniel Hudson very, very well over the last year and change. I mean, this is a guy who uh, opened his life up to me and let me follow him during his darkest moment, which is when he tore his uh, UCL and had Tommy John surgery the first time. And he's been uh, honest and forthright with me about the, uh, the the vagaries of rehabilitation and the emotion that it takes, uh, the emotional toll that it takes on a guy. And I was, you know, uh, as a as a human being, I was ecstatic to see him back out there. And so, you know, when he throws that first pitch and it comes in at 95 miles per hour and the scouts in the scout section look at each other like, damn, you know, this guy wasn't throwing 95 beforehand. Uh, it, it says it says a lot. Uh, it says he's back. And then the second inning comes along, and first pitch he throws is 93, and then he's at 92, and then it goes down to 91, and then it skips down to 89. And by the end of the inning, he's laboring through, and he's at 88 miles per hour. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, he's just trying to throw his cutters here. He's, you know, just doing to doing a thing, mixing up his pitches. Uh, and then I get a text message from him that says, I think I blew out again. <sighs> now, at the time, you know, every Tommy John patient, Brandon Beachy had the same thing. Charlie Morton had the same thing. Todd Coffey, the other guy who I'm following in the book, has had the same thing. Everybody who comes back from Tommy John surgery has a setback. Huddy had not had a setback at that point. So I figure, all right, this is just, you know, his elbow tightening up. Uh, he's out there. He's trying to, uh, you know, let it loose really, truly for the first time. No big deal. Uh, he's he's depressed that night. We go and grab a couple of drinks. I mean, uh, I'm trying to talk him off the ledge because, frankly, I didn't think it was anything. I thought it was him being paranoid. But uh, two days later, I get a call from him in the morning, uh, and he told, tells me that he blew out again. And uh, He went to Jim Andrews for uh, his second surgery because Lou Yoakum, who did his first surgery, had passed away. And Andrew told me he did a study one time on 1,200 Tommy John patients, and four of them uh, blew out uh, a second time before coming back. Four out of 1,200, one out of 300, 0.033%. Ouch. Or 0.33%. I mean, it's a less than 1% chance that this happens, and it happened to him. So, you know what, he's, he's doing it again. He, he fought very quickly about... Uh, just saying, you know, I'm not meant to do this. I'm done. But uh, he said to himself, that's, you know, that's not the way I'm going to go out. I'm going to make it back. And uh, only one other pitcher, I believe, Doug Brokale, has made it back to the major league after back-to-back Tommy John surgeries. And so uh, while this is going to delay the book a year so I can finish telling Daniel Hudson's story, I think it makes for a much richer and more interesting human story to go along with the great, uh, science behind the pitching arm that uh, I've been ferreting out for the last 18 months. Wow, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm i more excited for the book now. I think you're totally right that obviously you, you'd rather have written it the other way for the sake of him, but you have a better book now, I think. It is, it yeah. is. And honestly, I, I would have traded it yeah. for him to be healthy. Right. I, I would have because I, I, never, I never wish that on anybody, and this is such a secondary thing to his life, but I think that for people out there who want to understand the arm better and who want to understand how it works and why this thing that is so vital 
to Major League Baseball loses half a billion dollars every year in injuries, I think that the book is going to have even greater insight now into it all uh, because of this. And, uh, I, you know, I, I've talked with Daniel about this, and I, I think that he wants to be somebody who others can look to as inspiration when coming back. And I think that's totally warranted because it is going to be a truly inspiring story when he does come back. And, uh, I, you know, maybe maybe this is my personal feelings getting in the way, but I have no doubt that the guy is going to make it back, despite the history saying otherwise. Thanks a lot for doing this, as always. Pleasure mine, Steve. Thanks for having me, man. All right. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Stephen Jackson, Miles Austin, Leon Lett, Ocho Cinco, TJ Pushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right. I want to thank Jeff Passan from Yahoo Sports for being on the podcast. You always love catching up with Jeff who is, as we always say, very kind enough to give us a chance before we were even really a show. We were yeah. really just two guys looking to do an interview. I don't know why, I don't know why, but uh, that part in the intro where you talked about making Greg draft a player nine rounds late <laughs> really made me laugh today. <laughs> Roy Williams. I remember the moment. Like I can still picture myself. He just someone he forgot to there. cross off or yeah. something? And hey, got, is Roy Williams still there? And I was like, yeah, man, yeah. And then I remember like telling why. Might have been the year there on Hard Knocks. You know, and I'm like, oh, he looks like a beast out there. You know, and this is when the guy was like going like in the fifth, sixth round. Right, right. You know, I think he had just went to the Cowboys. They're expecting big things, and uh, you know, he got all proud to make his pick, and everyone just kind of shot him down. <laughs> all right, so five on fantasy today. First time we've done it in a couple weeks, and we're gonna do a couple things today. We're gonna do some more crowdsourcing. We'll do that at the end. But in the beginning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna do a first round mock draft PPR ten team league. We're gonna go right to pick eleven. We're going to go back and forth from one to two to three to four like that. You know, I'll pick one, Don will pick one, back and forth. Uh, and just kind of get a feel where we kind of think these guys should fall uh, in a real kind of mock draft format. And one thing I would say, ESPN, the fantasy football app, which is free, you can do mock drafts right on the app okay, now. That's and that's cool. fantastic, especially if you have a tablet, you know, and you're sitting on the couch watching TV or something, do some mocks. They're really fun, and they're a great way to uh, get yourself ready for your draft. Yeah, I totally agree. I use uh, the mock draft lobby quite a few times. I've probably done six, seven mocks so far. Uh, the only thing I will say, and I've written them about it too, is there's no PPR-specific mocks. So if I'm doing a PPR, and both of my leagues are PPR, you have to like pretend players like Darren Sproles aren't there at your 30th pick. Because otherwise it doesn't help you to do a mock. Because every mock I would end up with like my first round pick and Sproles and Reggie Bush or whatever in my flex spot and have like a monster PPR backfield. But and sometimes you have to do things like oh in my league that guy's kept so I can't draft him. I should sure. pretend he's not there. So right. certain things like that. But yeah, PPR specific mocks would be nice. So we'll give you our first ten, I guess, in a PPR or eleven. Right, because you always figure if you're drafting tenth, you're really making two picks there. Right. You know what I mean? So you can go first, Don. You uh, have the first pick in the draft. Uh, who are you going to take? Uh, no, no reason not to take Adrian Peterson there. I don't know what I can say that's going to staple that or hammer that home anymore. But uh, he was a monster after surgery last year and didn't ha- doesn't have any of that to worry about this offseason. So. 
In a PPR, it might surprise you to know that if I had the second pick in the draft, I might shock some people by selecting from the University of Texas, Jamal Charles. Hmm. I think he's the second best back in a PPR format, and I think he's going to have a monster year. I think Alex Smith is going to be really big for him, and he's a year closer, a year further away from that knee injury, and he was great last year. I wonder, in my league, I took number five, hoping to have a guy. Well, I'll get to that, I guess, because I'll have five. Uh, with the number three pick, I guess I have to take Arian Foster. Uh, consensus number one last year with Peterson Hurt. I, I don't know how. I know there's some people that just feel maybe it's a gut feel that uh, he's a little banged up or something. Like he's not the sexiest number two pick, but I, I'll take him all. I'll take him all day at number three. Like he's not gonna. You're not gonna shock anybody by taking him at number two. And the way things have played out here, I think I'm pretty excited at four to be able to draft Doug Martin. I think it's pretty good value there. And uh, I've seen him go as high as two in some leagues, no lower than seven. It's probably between three guys, Martin, Rice, and Spiller. I'll go with Martin, but I thought about Spiller, and I thought a little bit about Rice, too. Yeah, this is what I started to talk about. In my league, we do a KDS, Kentucky Derby style, meaning your name gets drafted out of a hat, but that's not your position. That's the order in which you get to pick your position. I chose five this year, which I know there's studies that just say take the earliest position available, but uh, I want C.J. Spiller. Uh, I think he's got best running back in the league in a PPR potential. Sure does. And he's my hometown guy. We've talked about this in the past. If you need to break a tie between a couple guys, pick a guy you like rooting for, and why wouldn't I want to root for the guy on my team? So I'll take Spiller at five. All right, then at six. You know, I really think that there's seven big running backs out there. And I'm not going to pick anyone but a running back until I get one of those seven. And for whatever reason, I'm a little soured on Marshawn Lynch. He's probably not going to last this long in many drafts. But I'm going to take Ray Rice here and leave Marshawn Lynch on the board. Yeah, see, this is where it gets tough for me. I, I wanted to make sure I picked within the top six. Now, in your league, maybe someone takes a quarterback here or in one of these spots so maybe that's how you get a guy to fall I kind of disagree about there being seven in a PPR format uh, I don't especially love Lynch there I don't have his numbers in front of me but I'm not I'm guessing he doesn't catch more than two balls a game I would and that might be high uh, and Trent Richardson scares me from from injuries standpoint boy but that this is why what are we, we're on seven right this is yep. The pick I would not want to have in a draft. Uh, I guess I'd go with Richardson. He's going to be the focus of that offense because they don't have anybody else really. Uh, the, they don't have a great quarterback. I think they're going to run him. He's going to probably have 30 touches a game uh, receiving handoffs. If he stays healthy, he probably finishes the season as a top five guy, but it, that's just a, it's a huge, huge if, and that's why those top – Six guys, uh, that's why I covered those top six spots. A little less question marks there. Well, now you put me in a spot because that means Lynch is still there. Calvin Johnson's still there, and we said this is a PPR. Right. And he definitely catches his fair share of balls. And I think the other guy to consider here is LaShawn McCoy, yep. who is also very much has much more value, I think, in a PPR than a standard. And I still like McCoy more than Lynch, and I'd rather have a running back here than a wide receiver, so I'm going to select LaShawn McCoy. Okay, this is where I guess I take Lynch. Uh, again, if he stays healthy, he should be a big part of that offense. He he might be a 
1500 yard guy, 1400 yard guy, and he'll be the touchdown back. Uh, the PPR part of it stinks, but the guy that's going no lower than probably three or four in standard leagues probably shouldn't drop much lower than this. So I'll take Lynch. All right. So that means I have two picks here and just about everything I like at running back at this point is off the board. So I'm going to take Breeze and CJ with these two picks and I'm going to take the best wide receiver by a mile and the guy who I think is the best quarterback. You could argue with me that you think Rodgers is better and I wouldn't have a problem with that, but everyone knows I'm a Saints fan. So if I'm truly making this pick, I'm furthering the point that you made earlier, Don, that it's my team and I'd rather have Breeze. And I don't think that there's enough of a difference between the two to pick Rodgers. This late in the draft, if you're in a 12-team league, that's where it gets really dicey. In a 10-team league, I don't hate you not getting a running back there with either pick, especially since maybe the best PPR guy left is Sproles, who is a nice PPR running back, but probably not the guy you want to hang your first-round pick on. I'd say the back I like the best that's left there is Steven Wrigley. Yeah, in a PPR, I know on ESPN's depth chart for PPR, they have him like, they have like 10 backs before him, so he must not catch the ball at all either. But uh, that's part – in a 10-team league, I don't mind going quarterback wide receiver there because I think you're still going to have 10 or so running backs to fill your roster with. And Then there's a lot of guys in this draft with that you take flyers on late. That was sort of fun. Let's do this next week and do a standard league. Take yeah. the PPR out. We'll do a 10-team standard league there, and maybe we'll do – Maybe then the next week we'll think about doing a 12-team PPR, a 12-team standard, and then it should be regular season time. Uh, Also for next week's, quick story for you. Last year, a listener of the podcast mentioned to me that it would be smart if I were to pick Alfred Morris. I think I reached out to him knowing he was a Redskins fan, and I said to him, what's going on with the backs down in Redskins camp? Who's kind of emerging? And he told me the guy he really liked was Morris. And I always tend to think that if you're a fan of a team, you know about little little quirks of your team like that. Like, I'd rather trust a guy. This might sound weird, but I'd rather trust a fan that I know is reading a beat reporter every day, getting all the information he can about his team every day, than a national fantasy football ranker who has to do this for 800 players or whatever. Yeah, I would, I've had this talk probably off the air, but I like John Clayton. But once in a while, when you listen to John Clayton come on with your local guys, you get a vibe that, okay, that statement really doesn't totally gel with what's actually going on here. Like He made a statement before about the Bills' offensive line being bad. and They did lose their guard and their backup guard. But other than that, they were one of the better offensive lines last year. So that just kind of seems like something that people assume. Yeah, I think that's an area of strength. I would agree with you there. But... uh but yeah, that's why what you're saying is exactly true. If you've got someone that's closer to the situation and doesn't have to try to monitor 32 teams, that's maybe who you should go with. And Alfred Morris is a brilliant call last year because I believe I mean, Roy Halu was there, and uh, I think Evan Royster was kind of the right. sexy expert pick to take over that spot, and he never did. And Alfred Morris now is pretty much cemented in there. Yeah, so we're throwing it back out. I ended up taking that to heart. I drafted him in several leagues. If I didn't draft him, I picked him up fairly early. He was a guy on many of my teams. And I was a very successful fantasy player last year in large part to having him on my team in several leagues. So we're going to throw it out to the fans of the the sportscasters again. Who is a guy 
maybe off the radar a little bit that you think can be a significant player on your team. And next week, Don, you can ask me everything you want to ask me about the Saints fantasy-wise, and I'll ask you everything I want to know about the Bills fantasy-wise because we are we should be able to tell our listeners about our teams. Right. Right? So between now and next week, I want you to tell me what kind of role Freddie Jackson's going to have. How high is too high for C.J. Spiller? Should E.J. Manuel get drafted? Who's their tight end? Does he have value? Right. You know, so let's – and you should be asking me about running backs. You know, how good are the three running backs for the Saints? Who's going to be the Saints' third wide receiver? How high is too high for Jimmy Graham? So we're going to talk about our teams next week in this spot. We're also going to do a 10-team standard league mock first round, and we're going to give you your responses to who's the guy in your team that's kind of off the radar that you should move up your draft boards and think about using a late-round pick or maybe not even just a late-round pick. keep an eye on him. Keep an eye, maybe better than you thought, uh, and we'll, we'll do that next time. All right, we're going to take a break in a second, and we're going to come back and finish off the Book Club Book of the Month uh, for late July, early August, difficult men behind the scenes of a created revolution from The Sopranos and The Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad by Brett Martin. Meet the Mets, meet the Mets, step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife, guaranteed to have the time of your life because the Mets are really sucking the ball. Our next guest is from Brooklyn, New York, and is a author. The author of the current book club book of the month, Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution, From the Sopranos and The Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. He's also a correspondent for GQ. He is a two-time winner of the James Beard Journalism Award, and is three times been included in the best annual football or football food writing anthology a warm sportscasters welcome for the very first time to brett martin how you doing today brett i'm good how are you doing you, you fulfilled a dream i didn't even know i had which is being introduced to the uh to the Mets theme song yeah we usually we do fight songs but your college didn't have one so we went with that and it's kind of cracking me up as we were doing that it's like just classic but uh, I screwed well, up there. If you, if you grew up in New York, you don't know. I knew nothing about college sports. For me, it was all about the pros. So, um, and then I went to a school which only had an ultimate frisbee team and no song. <laughs> so, I'm more than happy to be introduced by the Mets. Yeah, I'm actually going to be in Brooklyn in October for Pearl Jam at the new Barclays. Have you been to Barclays yet? I have not. I used to live. I live in New Orleans now, which is where I am, where it's incredibly hot. Um, that stadium went up uh, right on my corner. Uh, and, wow. But but after I'd left, and I went back, it looked like a spaceship had landed in the middle of my neighborhood. But uh, So I, I can't speak to what it's like inside. It's, it's weird as hell outside. Well, don't worry. You can still catch Pearl Jam in New Orleans. I think they're playing at like the Voodoo Festival or something. Is that? Is oh, that... yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's around uh, around Halloween. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We got a festival. Basically, every week there's some kind of festival. <laughs> um, I will do my best to get out there. Well, I'm really excited to have you on. I love the book. Uh, kind of a little bit of background on how it came up. We had, we do some culture stuff here and there when sports get slow. We really like doing that stuff as much as we can. And Alex Papadimus, who I think is a former colleague of yours, sort of at GQ, uh, we reached out to him around the time Gandolfini had died uh, to kind of talk, look back on the Sopranos. We're big Sopranos fans, and uh, kind of talk. One thing that was I was really, I don't want to say happy about because I was really bummed when Gandolfini died. But one thing that kind of came out positive of that is it seemed like 
the perception of Sopranos kind of changed a little bit where people kind of took a second to kind of look back and kind of realize just how great the show really was. Because I felt like as we got further and further away from it, it seemed like whenever people talked about it, it was just how much they didn't like how it ended kind of seemed to take right. over. Um, so we were able to talk to him and he kind of mentioned this book and I was hearing things about this book and I was like, I got to get it. I got to reach out to this guy. And I think the one thing that struck me kind of right away is whenever I think about writing, I always think about, it seems like no matter what writing class you took in college, the first thing the professor wanted to say to you is this kind of catchphrase of know your audience. And whenever I write, I always kind of think about that. And I wonder for you, when Gandolfini died, do you feel like the audience for this book changed at all? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I'm not sure. I, I think, um, I think, you know, the book covers, it, it starts with the Sopranos and it, uh, and, and very specifically, weirdly, creepily starts with this story about James Gandolfini disappearing and the, that was excerpted in GQ the day that he died. So it was all very strange. Um, you know, it, it, and then it, it goes through this golden age all the way up to Breaking Bad, which of course, you know, we're about to, 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 uh, to see the end of, um, and I think that you're right that some people had sort of started to forget, you know, how exciting and radical and kind of, you know, exhilarating it was to, when The Sopranos began. You know, it, it, it almost feels like things have moved so fast in the transformation of TV that, that we kind of forget um, how great that show was and, and what a weird, bizarro thing it was to exist on television, which until then had been, you know, more or less uh, the great wasteland. Um, so, so to the extent that I think it... it, um, it you know, I, it, I felt really weird about it. You know, it was, it was undeniably um, strange timing for my book, but but I do I like to think that that it did what what um, what you said, which is to you know remind people of what an amazing performance that was, in addition to how good the show was, and and that uh, if more people came to the book, which I think beats him and, and the show pretty respectfully um, because of that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy about that. Is that, is that. I'm sort of talking in circles, but is that, does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. I mean, what I was thinking, I think, was that I'm sure you had one audience in mind when you wrote the book, maybe an audience of people who really are into all of these shows that you write about, are into this revolution in TV that you, you speak so eloquently about. And then maybe I was wondering if the audience expanded beyond that a bit with Gandolfini passing away to more of a, a casual fan. And, and I was just wondering if, you know, there wasn't anything obviously you could do about it at that point, but I was just wondering if, if that, if that crossed your mind at all, cause it, it just kind of crossed mine. Right. No, I guess, I guess not. I guess if, if I had to think about who I was writing for while I was writing, it was probably somebody who, lo- I mean, you know, these shows have become such a part of our culture that to not have seen any of them pretty much marks you as as a weirdo, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's not like, you know, we're talking about basically the main shows that I write about are The Sopranos, The Wire, um, Mad Men, Six Feet Under, uh, Breaking Bad, and The Shield are sort of the big ones, and Deadwood, of course. Um, now, I sort of expected that that, um, that I would get... I guess my ideal reader, you know, I hadn't really thought of it before, so which is why I'm I'm going back and forth. I guess the ideal reader would have been somebody, and is somebody who um, who loves two of those, right, um, and is aware of the others, but is also interested in how culture gets made. I mean, that's ultimately what I wanted was to write a book that that is about. Um, as I call it, a creative revolution. You know, that is that I do think it works. You know, I don't think you have to have seen all these shows um 
I think that it works for anybody who's interested in how money and art come together at weird times in history in order to um, to make something special happen. You know, uh, it's this is not this is art that got made in in a world where art is not usually the top priority, and that's what interested me. Um, I sort of expected that everybody's seen The Sopranos, but I have learned that more and more people haven't. And you're right; I think a lot of people are going back and seeing it now, uh, having been reminded of it. Um, by uh, all the coverage of, of Jim, Jim Gandolfini's death. You know, you mentioned about how people who haven't seen these shows are weird, and I had an experience just last night. I was, I was chatting with someone on Twitter. Uh, it's just one, one sports writer that we have on all the time has been, has been hounding people about fantasy football advice on Twitter, and he was kind of making a self-deprecating joke, and he, he asked a question to the guy, you know, uh, should I eat Golden Grams or Honey Nut Cheerios tomorrow? As, as kind of a joke, like I've asked you all these questions. Here's another one, and the guy said, uh, "The guy said uh, Cheerios, preferably Honey Nut." And I wrote back to both of them, you know, somewhere Omar is nodding in approval, and the guy had no idea what I was talking about, and I was shocked. You know what I mean? I was like, "Yeah, how do you not know about Omar, little loving Honey Nut Cheerios?" And it was like shocking right. to me. So. Right. Well, that's the kind of. But I mean, again, I, you know, I think the fact that we take that for granted is is worth remembering that that's a pretty recent thing. That that you know, television there wasn't television like that uh, just recently. Like I agree. I think The Wire is mandatory American viewing. Um, you know, it's hard to consider yourself a an educated, culturally literate American without having seen The Wire at this point. Um, but yeah, you're right. A lot of people. A lot of people probably haven't. You know, I was surprised. Not totally surprised, but a little surprised you didn't include, include the A-team in here. Was it just because of the, the time since that <laughs> signed off? Because, I mean, I, I told Alex this. There I is a mention of the A-team in there. The A-team, actually, I do talk about the A-team the, uh, because Stephen Cannell, a cat, right. as they pronounce it, uh, you know, trained, uh, trained David Chase. Right, and I did, um, I did read that you know, part, but, was, I mean, as one of the yeah. main shows, you know, because I thought maybe – no, I'm kidding a little bit. <laughs> only sort of. I'm only yeah, sort of kidding. No, no, but the fact that it actually, uh, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of the A-Team, um, but I don't think it's one of the Golden Age shows. No, you're probably right, especially since it you know, yeah. concluded, it wrapped in like 1984, so to group it with a bunch of shows right. from the 21st century would probably be, it'd be scattered to say the least. Uh, but let's... I, do, I would say that if you had a show that you know, demonstrated, you know, that was perfect for what the, the mid-80s, the A-Team is is perfect in its way. Um, and I, I think it's... I didn't ever saw the films, but they seems like they completely missed the point. Oh, yeah, it was hideous. Hideous. Uh, <laughs> anyway, let's get... You're, you're going to hang up soon. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not at all. One thing I was thinking about, especially with Breaking Bad, which I'm, I can't wait to, to watch here in the next couple of weeks, and it seems like, you know, Mad Men has one more season, and uh, Dexter is rapping, and it, it just... Are you worried that this cultural revolution, this period, is, is sort of ending now? Uh, I think that, that uh, I mean, I'm sad to see, um, you know, Breaking Bad go, and Mad Men probably is, you know, has got another season. Um, I do think that, that we've come to the end of the first phase of this. You know, I mean, my book is really about all the sort of behind-the-scenes stories of, um, of this first kind of revolutionary wave and how it got made and all the, the, how, what, what the writers' rooms were like and um, and this kind of crazy group of, of writers who probably didn't expect that this is what they'd be doing with their lives. Now you've got um, you know 15 years into the revolution, you've got um, it's not that big a surprise for um, 
television to be good. Um, it, it sort of established itself as a as a firm niche. Um, and so somebody going to film school probably, you know, doesn't, unlike David Chase, who tear his hair out at the notion of working in television instead of film, um, now uh, somebody who's, you know, who's just starting out would think it's perfectly reasonable to go um, do a great television show. And, and it, it seems like the more channels there are, the more guaranteed we are to have at least one segment reserved for good work. And um, so that's my, my, my best hope for, for, um, for, you know, a continued uh, era of good television is that there's just so many channels that quality and good storytelling is a, is a niche. Like, um, you know, there's going to be puppies on television. There's going to be, you know, houseworking, or, you know, whatever shows about woodworking. Uh, there's going to be terrible reality shows. And somewhere there's going to be quality because everybody needs to brand themselves as something. You know, I guess the one negative that seems to come up in the book and about this is how stuck the actors and, and to some degree the creators get in in the roles that they have established for themselves. You know, you talk a lot about how Gandolfini struggled with people just looking at him as Tony Soprano. And this isn't necessarily a new thing. I mean, people have been typecast for since we've had recurring roles, really. You know, people will look at people like... Uh, right. And, um, you know, David Chase... I don't know. Does he have an, like? If this is going to continue, is it going to be because these great show creators come up with something new, or is it because is it going to be because new sh- great show creators come about, or maybe a combination? Well, it's a, it's a good question because nobody seems to have done it twice, right? Um, you know, nobody. You know, um, I guys, love Tremé, but nobody know, else does, right? I'm, I'm sorry. Say again. I said I love Tremé, but nobody else does. Well, no, I, I, you know, Treme is very popular down here, um, but you know, I don't think anybody, even somebody who absolutely loves Treme, it's not the wire would would right. put it next to the wire, um, or you know, and I think Luck was good, but it, but it was certainly not Deadwood. Um, True Blood is fun, and it's but it's not Six Feet Under, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, it, it's an interesting question. You know, some people have one great story to tell, and uh, are lucky enough to have the chance to tell it. Um, as far as the actors go. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was definitely, as I said, I opened the, the book with a, with a story about James Gandolfini at, at kind of the height of the, um, of the, of the Sopranos fame when, when it was like, you know, somebody described it like being around the Beatles was being around, uh, you know, Gandolfini and he was all the Beatles in one. Um, and playing that kind of role, uh, even though, yes, there have been recurring roles before, but not ones that were as demanding psychically as, as somebody like Tony. Being Tony Soprano is a really difficult place to be. Um, it was extremely hard physically and mentally, and he was the kind of actor who had to, to kind of um, pour himself into that role, and uh, it, it took its toll. And, and you see that, um, you know, and to a lesser extent with um, with uh, Dominic West, who played McNulty in The Wire, you know, eventually had to take a year, uh, almost a year off, um, it was really hard on Idris Elba playing Stringer Bell in that show. I just interviewed um, um, Brian Cranston, uh, of course, is Walter White, and, and even he, and he's an actor who really can turn it on and then turn it off, but even he said that he'd, he was exhausted. He was ready to put the hat down, as he said. You know, there's so many interesting kind of behind-the-scenes stories in this book, and I was kind of, as I was preparing for this, I was like, I don't know how much I want to get into it because I don't kind of want to spoil them per se for people who haven't read it. Uh, but no, but let's tell them. But we should tantalize them so that they must run out to the bookstore. Yeah, and buy the book. throw one or for two their of your parents and for themselves. Is there one or two kind of that you you know you're like in reporting for this book that kind of blew you away? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was blown away over and over again. I mean, it's not a very, very gossipy book, but it is it is um, a, a glimpse into um, what it's like to work in these very intense creative workplaces, you know, and, and these guys, um, you know, who seized this opportunity to make this television, you know, weren't necessarily the best people to whom you do. I say at the beginning, you know, starting a television show, it, it, um, I quote somebody from the business saying, you know, it's not like handing, letting a, a crazy person, um, you know, direct a movie uh, for, for a year. It's, it's making a crazy person the CEO of a, of a corporate division, you know. Um, these are not guys who necessarily have the best management or life skills. Um, so, you know, you have uh, David Chase, um, you know, coming in, one morning uh, with a young writer uh, and sitting you know, the empty, into the empty office and sitting down with him saying, he, I've just come from my shrink and I've realized that I can't possibly be happy in life until I've killed a man with my bare hands. Um, you've got uh, David Milch, you know, um, whipping out his, uh, his private parts and urinating out the window of MTM Studios. Um, you've got, uh, you know, Matt Weiner of Mad Men, uh, you know, screaming and yelling at his writers in the room. Um, you know, these, these are, these are all the stories that, um, that, you know, hopefully in the book are, are in service of showing all the different ways in which, um, this kind of crazy creative process gets done. You know, there was one thing you kind of touch on it in the book a little bit, and it's, it's something I've always, it's always kind of surprising. I can't wait to talk to see, hear what you say about this, but. When I started watching The Wire, it, it was over. You know, it was five seasons were passed. I binge watched The Wire, uh-huh. and uh, the person who was pitching it to me, saying you got to watch this, said the cool thing about it is that it takes the look at the drug war in these kind of five different angles. You know, season one is from the street, and season two is from the docks, and and so on. And then he said, you know, in season five, it's kind of about the media and the newspapers, and. I was like, oh, I'm going to love season five because here we have this guy who kind of came from the newspapers writing about that world, and that's a world that I'm really interested in, and I'm going to love it. And then it totally flopped for me. Like, season mm-hmm. five just doesn't fit at all. I don't know if it's because I just can't stand this this seeming I, – I, the whole, like, serial killer thing is just brutal to me. Like, I, I can't even believe it. And it's just like I, I just wanted to stop the whole time. And the newspaper characters, like the guy who's like faking the stories, I just want to punch him the whole time. I don't know if it's the characters or if it's the writing, but somehow that season that I had so – and maybe it's the expectations angle of it, but it just doesn't work right. for me. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time dissecting what went wrong in season five, and I think I'm pretty hard on it. I mean, I think the first thing you have to say is that by by the standards of 99% of television, it was great. Uh, Only by the standards of The Wire was it as much of a failure as as I believe it was. Um, And a lot of things, you know, as as I talk about it in the book, you know, a lot of things came together to make that go wrong, I believe. Um, You know, the, the show had peaked to some extent with the incredible triumph of season four um and and everybody sort of i think in the production sort of felt that way um that season four you know had it was going to be impossible to 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 outdo what what they did with those um the children in that in that show um ed burns who'd been an invaluable partner to david simon and i argue sort of you know almost as important almost as important as david simon um as a partner as a creative partner uh, had more or less left the show to go produce generation kill over in africa um, 
the season was truncated. It was only good. I believe it was only 10 episodes, which is always a problem because the pacing of these shows somehow makes a huge difference. Um, 12 or 13 just seems to be the right number. Um, and, and squeezing five seasons worth of subplots into 10 episodes was clearly going to be a huge problem. And then David Simon, uh, this was something that, uh, you know, was really, really close to his heart and maybe so close to his heart that, um, he lost a certain amount of, uh, of artistic uh, perspective. And um, it felt like somebody working out his private grudges, I think. Um, and so it didn't work. And, uh, and then he didn't react very well to it not working um, and, uh, and sort of accused the press of not, of, of not liking it um, because they were felt threatened by it rather than on, you know, on the face of it being just not as good. Um, you know, again, as, as a whole, all five seasons stand together as just a, a mighty piece of work. But I, I agree with you that five is a dud by the standards of the rest of it. A question that a, a reader or a reader of your book and a listener of our show sent in, which kind of seems like a, a long way to say, hey, what's good out there now? He kind of said, you know, there's there's all the, the, we're always looking at a sequel. And if Brad is thinking about a sequel to this book, does he see any shows that are on now? being included as if you were to write about the next wave is there any like current shows that you really are excited to see where they go into a season three or four or five or wherever they might be at this point like are you into the newspaper well, or you know whatever or the newsroom sorry right no i'm not um i mean i you know there's, there's a couple of things first of all personally i'm just thrilled not to have to watch with that kind of intensity right now like it's a it's a huge pleasure for me to watch game of thrones and just enjoy it as a viewer and not um know i'm not gonna have to write about it um you know i'm not a tv critic by trade you know so it's not like i'm watching everything out there um and so i've sort of been on on like watching vacation a little bit. Um, you know, there are things that I wish I, you know, everybody talks about justified. I have not watched enough justified to say, uh, on the whole, you know, I do love game of Thrones. Um, uh, on the whole, um, I feel like there's a lot of good shows, but nothing that I've seen that rises to the level of the shows that I write about in this book that, that are part of this first wave. Um, I'm loving uh, or I'm liking Orange is the New Black on Netflix. I think Netflix is probably the, the laboratory where the most interesting stuff is going to happen next. Um, but I'm not, uh, but I, 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 first of all, I'm not interested in writing another book about television right now. I just started writing a book about um, chefs, actually, about the chef's world, about a similar creative transformation of, of what it means to be a chef that, that kind of parallels what it, the transformation of what it means to be a, uh, a TV writer. Um, but, uh, and, you know, there's, I think there's great stories to be told out there about new voices, about the, the, the fact that, um, that women will have more and more of a voice now going forward, I hope, uh, that the male anti-hero won't be the only kind of hero we see on television. Um, but I can't say that I'm super jazzed about any, any show that, in a way that, that rivals these, you know, kind of giant achievements that I'm writing about here. I threw this question out to Alex when he was on, and he had an interesting response. I'd love to hear yours. I mentioned in the beginning about how it seemed to me like as we got further and further away from The Sopranos, the whole discussion was about how how the ending, how they didn't like it, you know, about how the the Mm -hmm. fade to black thing, you know, people were adjusting their TVs and calling the cable, you know, just all these like silly reasons to not like it. Personally, I kind of liked it, but, you know, I'm a huge fan of the show and I I was probably going to like whatever they did. But as we get to the end of Breaking Bad here, 
if you could create the ending and make it what you would think would be the perfect ending, is there something you have in mind? Is there a way you want to see this show end? I, you know, I don't. I just want to not know. I, I mean, I love being a viewer. You know, I love not having to guess that ahead. Um, I also love the Sopranos ending. I, to me, perfect, personally, I don't think there's another ending possible from Sopranos. And I think as time goes by, that becomes more and more of the opinion. Um, and I, and in the book, I, you know, I end the book with the Sopranos ending and, and with Chase talking about, uh, you know, really step-by-step step how he kind of began to formulate it. Um, uh, and I don't think that you could stay true to what that show said about you know, what that show's worldview was in any other way. Uh, and I, So I admire it more and more as time goes on. I have total faith in Vince Gilligan, um, you know, maybe too much, uh, but to, to, to be sad, to have this be a satisfying ending. Um, and and I, I kind of don't even enjoy guessing. I feel like the most blissful thing will be, you know, being able to sit and watch it and, uh, and, and, um, enjoying it as as a viewer you know sometimes we get to see stuff in advance i was in the offices um not that long ago and there was a frame of the final episode on the editing you know completely unintelligible but um but I, you know i could say that i saw a frame of the final episode um but i had zero interest in being told what it was <laughs> did you see the first episode yet i know they had thrown it out there for for the media have you... i saw the teaser no, no. i saw the, I actually did go again showed me the the teaser like the stuff before the um um before the first commercial but i um uh no i'm not apparently i'm not uh privileged enough i know a lot of people who have but i'm excited <laughs> to watch on sunday yeah i can't wait too uh the sportscasters are here with brett martin the author of a great book, Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution from The Sopranos and The Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. A couple minutes left. You also write a lot about food. I, I just wanted to ask you real quickly uh, before I forget about it. Did you ever come to Buffalo just for the purpose of eating for a couple of days? Because we have really, really no, underrated I food I would, here. I, would, I understand you have some sort of wings there. Yeah. Um, we have the best yeah, wings in the world. That. Go ahead, sorry. No, I was going to say, I mean, we have the best wings in the world. There's no doubt about that. But there's, like, yeah. other really delicious things to eat here as well. You know, we well, the beef on whack, right? Yeah, beef on whack is big. And, like, for some reason I've noticed whenever I'm out of town, like, pizzerias are apparently much different here. Like, the pizza we make is a little bit different. And, like, mm. subs are... Well, how is it different? Tell me about the pizza. Well, it seems like... like like when you go out of town, people when they're like, "Let's get pizza," it's like, "All right." They order it from like these corporations mostly. You know, like I I can't remember the last time I was home and ate pizzeria from a corporation. It's always like these little pizzerias, and the pizza is not. It's not Chicago style for sure. It's not that thick, and it's not New York style. It's not that thin. It's it's somewhere in the middle. You know what I mean? All right. It's, All right. You know, so it's different uh, well, for sure. Good. I would totally. I need to go to Anchor Bar. I've never been. Um, I need to have some beef on wax. Someday. You know, I'd, I'd love to come to Buffalo. Someday. Yeah, you need- I, I did eat at. Um, I had a girlfriend for a while who lived in Rochester, and um, what was it? They, they have a, a style of wings that's stickier and sweeter. Something. There's a chain called Sweet Something. Does that ring a bell? Um, that was delicious, like spicy but sweet. Um, but I never made it as far as Buffalo except to drive through to uh, on my way to Chicago a couple of times. Um, so one of these days I will come up and you'll take me out for uh, pizza and wings. Yeah, and don't worry so much about Anchor Bar as much as Duff's. Duff's, really? Okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, Anchor Bar is first, and, and that's, they, you know, they deserve a lot of credit for that. But Duff's is the best in the world. 
Tough is the one. All right. Yeah. That's fine. Um, yeah. Any other, uh, any other specials? What do you do with a hot dog up in Buffalo? Hot dog? Oh, we have this place called Ted's, right? And uh, Ted's Hot Dogs, and it's char-grilled hot dogs. So uh-huh. we, we don't boil them or anything like that. They're always grilled, and char-grilled yeah. is the best if you can do it that way. And we have a big hot dog maker named Salins, uh, and it's got to be Salins. And what is the what kind of toppings? Uh, well, I like a nice melted cheese on mine. I could definitely go for a nice cheese oh. dog a lot. Um, I think the most common toppings, I think what I see at Ted's the most is uh, obviously ketchup, mustard, a little bit of relish maybe if you're into that. Okay. Um, chili as well. Sometimes people are into that. They call them slime dogs up here if you get the chili on there. Slime dogs? Yeah, slime dogs is like a kind of a slang term. Delicious. We have this place called Jim's Steakout, which is like what everyone eats at 4 in the morning after the bars. And like their, okay. their specialty right. is either the stinger, which is a – steak and chicken finger heart attack waiting to happen or wow. just a steak and cheese sub which is is quite delicious um so all right, all right. i mean there's that all kinds good. of I will, I will definitely make it there sometime all right last thing and i'll let you go on this is there a number one show i mean to me it's the sopranos and everyone's always like no it's the wire and then we get into this debate and uh, it's, it's totally splitting hairs really when we debate it but is there one for you that you would covet as the number one? I, you know, I, I mean, I don't. I, you know, I do think, you know, either of those could be. I think, um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in the book talking about how these shows are alike, but the fact is that they are also uh, very, very different, and all have kind of different projects in mind, and and uh, and really shouldn't be compared in terms of quality. I mean, I think it's just a joy to live in a world where they all exist. Um, you know, The Sopranos, you know, can't be rivaled for its importance in terms of transforming TV. Um, the Wire is, you know, I think, like I said before, every American should be, should, should watch it. Um, you know, on now, I think Mad Men and Breaking Bad are probably the top shows on TV right now, and they're, uh, but they're such, they're, they, they want such different things. They're, they're after such different goals that it's hard to measure one against the other. So I'm going to dodge the question. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't think you're wrong, but I don't think your friends are wrong either. All right, one last time. It's Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution from The Sopranos and The Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. It's, it's available you know, at the bookstore or all kinds of ebook formats as well. And let's see, you got GQ, you're, you're on Twitter, at Brett Martin. Anything else you want the listeners to know about where they can find your work or what to look forward to? Or no, anything? that'll do it. That'll be it. Yeah, no, it's good with uh, at Brett Martin with two Ts. Um, you can buy the book uh, everywhere you buy books. And, uh, uh, and I'm around. Thank you so much for doing this. I love the book. I uh, really appreciate the time. And I look forward to maybe doing something again in the future if you're into it. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks, man. Whenever, whenever you want. All right, I want to thank Jeff Passan and Brett Martin for being on the podcast today. Don't forget to email us with the sleepers from your favorite NFL team at the sportscasters at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can also find our podcast on the website, www.sports-casters.com. You can find last week's episode with Rich Eisen and Stuart Mandel. This episode or any of the episodes we've done in the past next week, 
Uh, I'm not exactly sure what we have, but like I said earlier in the show, we're out to a lot, and I'm sure it will be good. <laughs> Quite a yeah. teaser, right? That's a good one. All right. Uh, one last thing for me today, and I guess it's me somewhat beating a dead horse, but I just want to say that Hard Knocks kicks ass. And I have somewhat different proof for that this week, and that is that last night Miss Caster and I sat down to watch the first episode, and after an hour of her not even looking down at her phone or her Kindle the whole time, wow! as it ended, she said, that's a really good show. Has she watched in the past with you? She has watched it in the past, okay. yes. Uh, so it just goes to show if you're looking for something that you think you would really like to watch with your girlfriend or wife that you hope she might like, there's a little bit of proof in this house that Hard Knocks could be a winner. The show is just done amazingly well on so many different levels, and there's a great article at The Monday Morning Quarterback by our good buddy Richard Deitch about what goes into producing that show, and I recommend that. And I also recommend every week, Tuesday nights, 10 o'clock on HBO. You can also find it on HBO On Demand and HBO Go after it airs. It's really the best thing in sports documentary television. All right, one last thing for me this week. Full disclosure in sports is cool. Uh, For reasons you just said, seeing behind the scenes of all that, what goes into making a football team and winning, uh, presumably, and trying to win and just what goes into the players' lives and all that is is what makes Hard Knocks so cool. Well, there's a blog called The Goose's Roost, uh, the Sabres used to have a guy named Paul Gostad uh, that had a fan section. It was called the Goose's Roost. I'm assuming that's where these guys got the name from. It's a couple local Buffalo guys that I don't know, and I really don't know their site that well, but I came across an article that was really neat. Uh, the Sabres do this thing called, I can't remember what it's called now, but they do this video series that's really cool behind-the-scenes look at stuff. And these guys at Goose's Roost, namely Ryan Nagelhout, took video from the Columbus Blue Jackets official site from the draft and used it to kind of deduce that the Sabres and the Columbus Blue Jackets were trying to make a deal for a pick. And based on when the Sabres took the deal off the table, they think that the deal was so the Sabres could move up and draft a player named Max Domi. This stuff is awesome to me. This is a really cool uh, It's a cool little bit of uh, detective work by these guys to go into just – this stuff is really cool. Now, I know for very obvious reasons, they can't have cameras behind the doors at things like arbitration hearings because teams and players are mean to each other probably to try to get the best deal they each think is possible. And in this case, I don't. what does it hurt if Sabres fans knew that Darcy Regeer wanted Max Domi? What does it hurt if Columbus were maybe willing to deal the pick that would have gotten them Max Domi. Ultimately, Max Domi was picked two picks earlier than either team would have picked. But still, this stuff is awesome. I think from a fan's point of view, from someone, we live in a fantasy football society now. Uh, football is probably the most popular sport in the world because, in some large part due to fantasy football. And it's awesome to be able to trade those players. And I, I've always thought at the trade deadline in the NHL, which is the best trade deadline of any sport because there's actually moves made at it, and big-name moves, it'd be so cool to hear what, what didn't happen. But teams are never honest about it. Players are never honest about it. And maybe there is some need for that. But 
how awesome would it be if you knew what your teams were really trying to do? 